The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. To the business of the business podcast, I am your co-host JP John Paz from the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, and of course, joining me here each and every week is my co-host, Mister Trump Mania himself, Lavi Margolin. Lavi, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, excited to be back for episode twelve. This is a big episode 12, and it's about to get even bigger because also joining us, we have a special guest, the man behind WrestleNomics. He is a great wrestling historian. He's a great wrestling mathematician, you might say. He is Mr. Brandon Thurston. Brandon, welcome in. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. Thanks again for having me. It's great to talk with uh, with John and Lavi. Two on yes. three or one, two on one. It's a handicap match, but I'll be okay. <laughs> Yes, let's hope you can uh, deal with it because Lavi sent me a lot of notes uh, on your uh, on your um, your report. So wow. hopefully, uh, hopefully you're ready because he. I feel like right. he was almost over prepared. What do you wow. think, Lavi? Well, Am I ready? A little over prepared? Yes, I was analyzing. You know, I, I have to impress. You know, Brandon knows I'm I'm a fan, and to get through twelve episodes without having invited Brandon, I I think we're we're impressed with ourselves because. Um, <laughs> Uh, tied with Court Bauer, I think uh, Brandon is uh, the most referenced on our podcast. Wow, well, I appreciate that. Lavi especially has been one of the longtime and original Russellomics supporters. But I have the PDF open on my laptop, and I will uh, I will look at it and reference it and, and defend it as needed. I'm ready. Great. Right, Lavi. So, John, Lavi, I want to get started. Yeah, I was going to say, Lavi, I want to let you get it started because you have so many notes. I don't even know where to start, but I'll let you start because you've got a lot of good stuff. Great. You know what I'm realizing for our listeners at home or in the car? Well, don't do this if you're in the car, but if you're at home, uh, if you want to follow along and you haven't yet downloaded and purchased the WrestleNomics report, um, how can people get that? They can get it on PayHip. The, the, the PayHip link is pinned right now to the top of the WrestleNomics Twitter account. You can find it there. It's only $6 through PayHip. Or if you are a current WrestleNomics supporter through Patreon for $5 a month, that's at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. It's a part of what you're given for being a supporter. That's it, The PDF is there in a post on the Patreon account if you have access. Awesome. So let's jump right into it. So on page three is a great breakdown of the company profiles. Um, of course, WWE, AEW, New Japan, Impact, and Ring of Honor. And when you look at it from this perspective, one of the things that immediately jumps out is the ownership. So 
you know, when you think about sports and entertainment today, a lot of it is big corporations and certainly WWE has become a big corporation and the Khan family of AW oversees some big companies, but still the two biggest companies in professional wrestling, at least from a North American perspective, are at least majority owned as family businesses. Do you think that's more coincidence or there's something to it that's unique about the pro wrestling business historically or currently that allows for that? Well, con controlling ownership of WWE is owned by Vince McMahon at this point. To technically speaking, the McMahon family owns probably a little bit over the, a little bit more than a third of the shares. But because they own those special Class B shares, they own Vince personally owns the overwhelming majority of control, um, and the Khan family is believed to be the majority owners, at least of of AEW. I guess. And, and to compare them to the other three companies that are in this table is New Japan, which is owned by Bushi Road and Impact owned by Anthem and Ring of Honor owned by Sinclair. I guess you could you could maybe start to form an argument that if you're owned by a major parent company that maybe is not as familiar with the wrestling industry or, you know, it's not it's not a passion project for them. Um, they're kind of, at least in the case of Anthem and Sinclair, I think they're happy to own a wrestling company for the sake of the content that it provides two weeks a year. Um, and it's maybe not as much about uh, the upward trajectory of this company in the, in the wrestling or the media business world. Um, whereas AEW uh, was formed as a, a passion project of Tony Khan and WB has been, you know, the living work of Vince McMahon for many decades, obviously. Um, and you think about the history of WCW being acquired by uh, the Turner Company and how maybe there there wasn't the greatest leadership throughout the history of, of uh, Turner owning WCW so that maybe, I don't know, I guess maybe you can make an argument that the these CEOs of this company are super passionate about Sports entertainment in Vince McMahon's case and pro wrestling in Tony Khan's case. But, uh, you know, maybe there there's less of a limit to their success or their upward trajectory because they're not limited by, you know, the corporate overlords that oversee their projects. Um, they're they're really answering to no one but themselves. Although you know, I, I know Vince arguably answers to shareholders and things of that nature. But um, there's there may be something to that lobby. Great. So actually, that um, that answers part of my next question, which was related to sort of challenges of, of being part of a bigger puzzle uh, for companies like Impact, ROH, and and even New Japan in terms of being a subsidiary, not only of Bushi Road, but a subsidiary of New Japan in the U.S. Right. So it used to be speculated that WCW may be running on the books in the early to mid-90s is unprofitable. But if they'd have received a competitive rights fee from Turner, they'd be in the black. So, you know, it seems like it's challenging to get a decent paying um, television contract for companies. But for companies like ROH and Impact that are run by television companies, do you think it's a handicapping challenge that they face in producing content within their own corporate ecosystem when sort of their 
division and the rights are determined by a larger corporate entity with which they exist. Do, do I think it's a handicap for them to do what exactly? Like for growth. So let's say like with Ring of Honor, yeah. um, you know, how they're um, apportioned a percentage of a fee for production or mm -hmm. a percentage of um, advertising sales is determined by the larger Sinclair um, management, one would assume. So yeah. they're less likely to go out into the broader market and compete for a contract if they could get one. So do you think that's sort of like a restrictive challenge, kind of like what was speculated on for WCW within the Turner empire, like in the early to mid nineties? It, it probably is. Cause there, I think there's two factors here where, Number one, Sinclair, for example, probably doesn't want to invest a lot of money in, say, production or other areas just just by virtue of being risk averse. I think I think Sinclair is probably just comfortable and happy to have this content 52 weeks a year in non-pandemic times, at least, uh, and to have this this wrestling show that they they own and they don't have to pay anything, any kind of rights fee to have. They just uh, sort of have it as a subsidiary. And growing it sounds nice. Uh, if they happen to be associated with a Madison Square Garden sellout, we'll mention that on, on the earnings call. But um, I think they, I think there's the second issue is that there isn't a great understanding of the pro wrestling industry or what it would really take to grow. I, I think there's just sort of a lack of expertise and a lack of interest in in wanting to really grow. Um, you know, Joe Coff is sort of delegated to to be in charge of Ring of Honor and. I don't know if uh, Joe Coff is, you know, the person to help Ring of Honor grow or the leadership that, that they have is the, the leadership that is going to understand the business and how it's changing and what it's going to be like a few years from now in order to get Ring of Honor to, for example, grow its ticket sales and grow its merchandise sales or grow its media value. I think it's um, New Japan has some some similarities maybe here as well in that I think this is mo mostly about like, culture and geography though, that there's enormous opportunity for new Japan. I think, well, I think it's debatable how much opportunity there is, but there's sufficient opportunity that I think is not being capitalized on for new Japan in the U S in terms of growing their media uh, rights value. Um, but I, th and I think um, new Japan just doesn't understand how to, you know, spend effectively or is unwilling to spend effectively in the region in, in Western markets in order to grow its media rights value uh, beyond what it is. Um, so I think it's definitely, and, and I don't know that that changes in New Japan's case if New Japan was an independent company, but uh, definitely in the case of Ring of Honor, I have less of a sense of what's happening in Impact. We're relatively in early times of uh, Impact being owned by a parent company, Anthem. But uh, I, I definitely think there's, at least in the case of Ring of Honor, a, a pretty clear case of a company that's very happy to maintain the status quo and is not overly concerned, apparently, you know, to, in my view, uh, with revenue growth. Great. So now I'd like to um, skip ahead to page nine, company finances. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, of course, the WWE information is public. So and, and also New Japan's, um, but which which I'd like to talk about sort of some of those numbers for New Japan. But the one that most fascinates me and most revealing here is um, $64 million estimated for 2020. 
as it's a non-public company, I'd love to know um, sort of the methodology for deriving that number. I would have to bring up a spreadsheet to tell you just how I broke it down. Um, but as, as we know, uh, AEW's TV deal, average annual value is $43.75 million. You're going to round it up to $44 million per year. So there's that. And uh, I again, I would have to bring up the spreadsheets and find my uh, my original research on this. But uh, the rest would be um, media values in international markets, ticket sales to the extent that there were ticket sales in 2020. Obviously, they had two and a half months of normal weekly uh, dynamite tapings. And then beginning in August or so, they started to do the limited capacity uh, admission. Uh, other areas would be merchandise, online merchandise especially, and um, some venue merchandise relative to the number of attendees that they had. And then there's also some digital advertising through, uh, I think mostly through YouTube. Um, and then there's product licensing as well, not least. That would be things like the video game announcements. I don't, I don't, I didn't count any uh, video game. I know they announced three video games earlier this year. Uh, I did not count any of that because none of those games have launched yet. But there is with Jazzwares, which I think is under the subsidiary within Jazzwares, Wicked Cool Toys that is doing the uh, the the action figures for AEW. So it's it's those areas, and the vast majority of that would just be coming from the first year of TV rights value uh, from their biggest partner, Warner Media. And Warner Media has done a lot to uh, apparently help them get deals in other regions with other uh, other networks that have an association with or are owned. I think it's mostly the cases that they are owned by Warner Media. In the case of, say, Space in Latin America, and I, and I never know how to say the one in, uh, I think it's Germany, Siri or something like that. Um, but yeah, if, uh, if you, if, if you have any thoughts about that lobby, feel free to chime in and I will try to find my spreadsheet here. No, um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Of course, we know that the, um, and pay-per-view let's not forget pay-per-view. True. I, yeah, the, the horse or the horse that's pulling the cart or, or vice versa. Um, you know, that of course it's television revenue and, um, the pay-per-view merchandise and licensing and, and ticket sales, what, what we would traditionally think of, but I think that's that's a fascinating number um, as you do break it down with the spreadsheets and, um, you know, the various reports, yeah. which is why it's really important to follow WrestleNomics. So the... Um, so I've got it. If you want, if you want to hear, if you want to hear the the numbers, this is this is like premium inside analysis here. So I've got, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, Lobby, $64 million total, uh, an annual revenue. Everybody, by the way, wants to know, is AEW profitable? I, I don't know. I think it's probably close one way or the other. But um, uh, so out of $64 million, I'm putting $52 million of that into media. I'm giving this a similar breakdown to WWE, which has media, live events, and consumer products. So $52 million into media, the vast majority in media, which is co consisting of things like uh, TV rights values, uh, app, TV advertising, TV sponsors, pay-per-view, and digital advertising. Um, and then there's live events, which I uh, estimated four and a half million dollars for, which is based on an estimate of about 86,000 tickets sold with an estimated average ticket price of $53. And then finally in the consumer products area, about seven and a half million dollars. 
uh, that's estimating about 4 million, just over 4 million in e-commerce, uh, about 1 million in Venny Merch, and about 2 million in product licensing. Yeah, no, it's awesome to to get the uh, the deep dive into that. And there's even more detail if you have any questions. <laughs> John, did you have any other questions about AW's um, revenue or, or earnings? I'm just trying to think, though. Let's say they are making $44 million a year or whatever from TNT. Even mm -hmm. though technically they're not going on the road for production, does that affect that deal at all or it is what it is even though they're not going on the road they're not paying production costs it's just going to benefit AEW. they're going to save money or does tnt kind of come in and say uh that's not how the deal is structured is, is there any difference so originally the report i think from Meltzer, is that um when dynamite started in october 2019 the deal was to cover production costs and then a a share of ad revenue but in january there was uh the report that um AEW and Warner Media came, came to a new deal to extend their deal for, uh, I think it's three years with the option for the fourth. And that's $175 million over the total term of the deal. And that would come out to, uh, on an average annual basis, about $44 million. I'm calculating, uh, since I, I'm, I'm assuming that this is a contract that escalates over time. So the first year is the lowest set of payments and then the last year will be the highest set of payments so I'm, I'm assuming about 38 million dollars in 2020 and i think that's guaranteed money so i think that's a, just a tv rights fee um there may be some complexity to it but i think it's largely a guaranteed payment and just the fact that uh tony khan has said on m multiple occasions in public since covid has been happening that uh, the deal is 175 million dollars uh, over the the total term of the deal makes me believe that yeah they're they're getting that money and it's not contingent on um you know the uh, the the circumstances of covid and the fact that they're taping tv now in uh, in daily's place uh maybe with the lower production cost good for them i mean it's got to be uh more profit for sure because not going on the road is definitely kind of oddly enough saving wb and them a ton of money and you know, obviously that's kind of been benefiting because if you look at WB, they had the biggest quarter they've ever had. So it's crazy to say that wrestling doesn't need live shows, but it looks like wrestling doesn't need live shows right now. To to make money, yeah, it's it's one of the key narratives I've found over this past year is that wrestling is. There's never been a greater example than 2020 of just how wrestling has transformed, at least in the U.S. Not so much the case in Japan, but at least in the U.S., uh, it's transformed into being you know, this industry that was based on ticket sales some decades ago to over time becoming what it is today in that it is a media business. It's basically people selling video. You think about it that way. And a lot of that, the most valuable part of that video is the live broadcast of the, the, the events. Um, and you want to have uh, a, a, a lively, excited crowd in attendance, but uh, the, vast majority of the revenues or, or at least in, in aw's case it is the vast majority and in w's case it, it was the majority this year and when i say this year i mean last year but it's uh it's it's uh it's it's allowing pro wrestling to be uh way more of a media industry than a ticket selling or merchandise selling industry and then when 
you got to do TV in a fixed location in the case of the Performance Center, where you didn't have to load in or load out. Uh, that's a great cost savings. Now, things for WWE, I won't get too far ahead on WWE, but in the case of WWE, they've, that's changed since the advent, the addition of the Thunderdome and Capital Wrestling Center. But uh, it's very expensive to run TV on, on a touring schedule around the country, going from arena to arena, and uh, incurring all the costs that are associated with setting up a stage and an, and an entire arena to uh, run a high production value wrestling show that networks and fans have come to expect. Um, it's very expensive in the, in the hundreds of thousands for each show, at least. So it's, it's a cost savings. I don't, I don't know exactly what the dynamics are the, at Daly's place. I don't know if they leave the whole production up uh, between tapings, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely got to be a cost savings to some degree uh, to run at Daly's place versus to run around the country. So in speaking about uh, Japan, on uh, page 10 of the report is the annual revenue and net income. Um, and first of all, uh, in terms of the annual revenue, um, you know, as expected, sort of um, as they've emerged from sort of the dark years, the Enochism and, and beyond, um, once they got things really going by 2012, the revenue in American dollars just grew and grew and grew from 11 million, 16 million, 21 million to 2019, 52.1 million, and then a little bit down to in 2020, uh, which speaks to the fact that, you know, probably would have been um, much higher and exceeding 2019 without COVID. But what's really interesting to me is when you look at the net income, it looks like they're on a very thin wire between um, profitability and loss. And even in their best years, 5.5 million in 2018, but some years, 2012 was a, a, a tiny loss, but it's just a little bit over 1 million. One of the things I had heard, and I could be totally wrong about this, was that I heard that in Japan, the process of reporting like income is sort of different that there's sort of a plan of like disseminating the money to like to vested parties rather than like retaining a big amount on hand. I'm not sure if if you're if, if that has any validity or or why you think that there's such um, low income uh, following revenue each year. Yeah, I have no idea. One of the one of the things that I've come to learn in doing this last couple of years is that it's way easier to understand what the revenues are because so much of the revenue activity and the things that would give you an impression about the revenue activity activity happen in public, but the expenses are much more opaque. Um, so I have no idea why. Uh, other than there's there's somewhat of a relationship in some years between revenue and net income, I'm you know perplexed to figure out why uh, why profit is so much lower in years like say 2015 uh, than than other years like 2018. Um, I, I can't imagine what the expenses are, and maybe it does have something to do with as you mentioned, lobby the uh, maybe there's some sort of uh, accounting practice that we're not as familiar with in the U.S. No, oh, yeah. And it speaks to the fact of that if your company sort of starts to teeter on the edge, then, you know, you don't have a lot of cushion, right? Like we've seen um, Japanese pro wrestling companies running very hot and then suddenly they're gone, you know? So it's 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 a challenge that, that might be unique there. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about was on page 11, the uh, media partners, um, but more sort of the 
news that New Japan thus far has emerged without a contract for a linear media partner and is now on Roku. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think this, you know, uh, what do you think of this? I think it's better than having no deal being on Roku. Um, they already uh, had their first scheduled airing at 5 p.m., which I've been told is 5 p.m. no matter where you are in the country and maybe even the world because Roku is in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Um, and I have pulled up my Roku machine and looked at what the New Japan, uh, you know, with the New Japan, I don't know if it's a channel, but you go, you can search New Japan and you find it there. Um, so it's it, there's 10 episodes right now of Wrestle Kingdom 14, which is 2020's Wrestle Kingdom. So there's fans fully in, att- in attendance there. Um, it's better than not having any uh, distribution in, in the U.S., which was the case for New Japan throughout the entire year of 2020 because it lost its deal on Access at the end of 2019 because Anthem uh, acquired Access and put Impact on it. And uh, maybe Impact, uh, maybe they wanted uh, Impact and New Japan to cooperate, and they did not cooperate, and uh, New Japan was uh, taken off of the network as a result. Um, but I don't think it's this great deal for New Japan. I don't think it's going to lead to discovery uh, of of New Japan for people who aren't acquainted with it, uh, like maybe access did to some extent, because it's not as if you're going to, um, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't imagine that people are browsing through Roku, like they would be browsing through their TV guide on their, their cable or satellite box and scrolling through and seeing this, this wrestling program in the schedule in their guide. Um, now granted ac- access wasn't in the vast majority of cable homes. It was in about, about half of cable homes, which means it was in about one third of U.S. homes, so it wasn't this. Uh, it wasn't being on the USA Network, for example. But um, and I so the Roku deal is probably not a huge media revenue deal, but it's at least something. It's the beginning of something. Maybe New Japan can get some viewership data. I'm not terribly optimistic though that like tons of people are going to watch this, especially considering. I don't know. I, I want to see going forward, like wh- how how quick is the turnaround going to be in terms of the programming? First thing they put on there is over one year old. So I, I just want to see how that goes. And I think a lot of the value in um, in New Japan is to um, put it put some sort of distribution out there live. Obviously, you can get that through New Japan World, and they would probably be averse to. Um, sort of competing with themselves and cannibalizing themselves with New Japan World. I, I almost wonder if there's an opportunity for New Japan World to do something similar to um, what WWE has done with Peacock in terms of uh, selling uh, exclusive rights within a region to another media dis- distribution partner. Now, all that said, I don't, I don't think uh, New Japan is going to do anything like that. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Hopefully people aren't... Uh, listening, getting their hopes up. I think sort of the new Japan that we have right now is a new Japan that we're going to have for a number of years to come in terms of the presence in the U S at least in terms of media. I think new Japan thinks that they can continue to try to run a live event business and run a live event business in the way that they can run a live event business in Japan. And I think they will probably try to do that uh, post COVID and they will probably find that it's harder to draw uh, attendees, paid attendees in the U.S. than than they're anticipating, and uh, I think the thing for New Japan to do would be to um, work with some sort of talent agency that could help them get uh, a better media deal 
uh, in the U.S. and in other other Western markets, maybe, or set up more of a of a U.S. office. Um, my understanding is that I believe it was, it was George Carroll who used to uh, work in the U.S. office. He's no longer there, and that uh, the U.S. you know New, New Japan USA is essentially uh, Rocky Romero and Katsuyori Shibata, and there's not much else to it. Um, so I don't think that New Japan is willing to invest the money that it would take to uh, maximize their media revenues in the U.S. And uh, I don't think that they're going to have a, uh, an, an awakening that's going to lead them to uh, you know, implement a different strategy anytime soon, which is a shame because they have such a great product. No, I, I think, yeah, I, I think sort of when there's the opportunity to sort of go all in, um, on, on the market, it seems like they're sort of half in and half out. And I'm not, and we've talked about on this program that we're not sure that they completely understand sort of the U.S. market and its challenges. But um, with AEW, we've talked about some of their um, international deals that are emerging. One we didn't mention that's a little bit easier to, to pronounce is TNT Africa. Um, we were trying to figure out if it's actually like TNT in Africa, if it has the same cachet, but we're, we're not sure yet. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things, and, you know, it's hard to look at like something like a TNA for success, but I think one of the things that worked well with them when they brought in Hulk Hogan was that every, you know, international distributor, when they got a pitch likely and it said Hulk Hogan, they were like, oh, I know Hulk Hogan, whether that worked out for the best or not. Um, but do you think that to grow their reach outside of the TNT or Turner universe, if if they need to, that it's just a timing or momentum thing? Or do they need to sign like a John Cena or, or Roman Reigns one day? And then the distributors will be like, oh yeah, wrestling, I know John Cena. Um. I don't know that they need to. It would probably help, at least in the short term. Um, I don't expect I don't expect AEW to uh, to to sign Hulk Hogan and bring him in, but uh, and I don't expect John Cena for that matter to to be in in AEW at any time, maybe ever. But um, I th- I think the way that this works is that they just continue to grow a history and a, and a legacy and a global name ID throughout the world. And that, that starts with, um, becoming more popular in the U S um, which I don't know if that'll happen to a great degree, but, uh, I, one of the things that I've noticed by just looking at Google web search, for example, is how much a history really matters. It taken in the case of impact wrestling, which in, and say in the years of 2017 and 2018, and maybe 2019 as well, especially in 2019, when you think about how Impact Wrestling was on the Pursuit Network, which I don't know, you know, who, who has the Pursuit Network? Um, and at least in that year, for example, I felt very much that, okay, Ring of Honor has a higher profile than Impact Wrestling. But Impact Wrestling, just I think by virtue of being on Spike for all of those years, uh, still had this apparent uh, larger name idea and, and still had an enormous uh, degree of Google web searches uh, exceeding Ring of Honor. So I, I think, I guess that just taught me that the more time that you exist for on a long enough timeline, you continue to build this name ID 
and you continue to get people familiar with your brand and uh and maybe that's something that helps uh new japan or new japan it helps aew uh continue to build a name in international markets that helps them uh in distribution obviously just becoming more popular would have uh, uh would help them a lot if they you know Groups are, so I think it's a. Uh, I think a lot of times we overcomplicate maybe the 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 path to becoming a a stronger uh, professional wrestling company, and it largely has to do with just being stars and cultivating stars. Uh, they may or may not be you know region specific stars, but uh, if you create a, a big enough star, that star will will garner interest throughout the world. No, uh, that's a great point. It actually speaks to something I was going to talk about later, which is sort of like YouTube and, and social media for um, impact. And when you compare it to AEW, that impact obviously has a 17 year or thereabouts head start. And, you know, they the momentum seems to be slowing with, with things like YouTube, but they sort of still have this big presence. And one of the things that I attributed to is just having all these names, like for fans, I don't know how many fans there are out there like me, but like, if I'm like, if I want to look up Vader and like impacts match comes up and, you know, he might not look, it might not be his best years or dusty roads. I might watch it, you know, and I might subscribe because of that. And now we see AEW. something I'm trying to figure out is with this AEW dark, like they're like, basically like just throwing out like, 18 20 matches a week and i'm trying to figure out like what's the point what's the goal here and the way that i see it or trying to figure it out is see it as like a land grab like grow as quickly get as much presence on youtube as possible get as many views get as many subscribers and then you can sort of build from there just because to throw out so many matches it just doesn't seem to make sense economically of flying these people in and out. And from a viewership perspective, being like, yeah, they're probably not flying them out. I, I think it has a lot to do with developmental. And I think a lot of people who end up appearing on, on AEW dark probably pay their own travel. Um, AEW probably still has to test them uh, for COVID and all that. Um, but I, I think it's, I think a, a large part of it, part of it is that you're creating content for YouTube and maybe that inches up, the YouTube revenue a little bit, which is, you know, a relatively small amount of revenue. But um, I think it's largely giving people a shot to see if, do I want to work, work with this person in the future? Is this some, somebody we could, you know, think about signing? And I think a lot of it too has to do with maybe satisfying uh, so-and-so, you know, recommends this guy, he wants his buddy to, to come in here and, and have a match. And that, that's what happens. Um, but uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of the people, in fact, I, I I I know directly that some of the people who appear there uh, are are not being flown in by AEW. In some cases, they are, but not but not all. As a um, as also a uh, accomplished professional wrestler, like what do you think about something like that? Like, should that be for a um, for a company that might be profitable, at least you know, in terms of. Um, uh, revenue that's making multiple millions a year should that have to be a barrier that you have to overcome to prove yourself you must spend money to mm -hmm. sacrifice and and basically perform for free or for a nominal amount to prove yourself i think it just kind of speaks to general economic inequality right and um i think it's also be before you think about like the, i guess like the 
the ethics of it or the right and wrong about it. What's what's happening in this case, where just for example, people are flying themselves into AEW for the, the hope of being able to have a match on dark or or possibly even on dynamite. Um, it's it's just supply and demand. It's, it's there's this overwhelming supply of talent. Um, there's this overwhelming supply of wrestlers who whose dream it is to make it big in wrestling or to become big wrestling stars. And uh, it's they're all in a in a subtle competition with each other to um, to get ahead of one another and to get the the big opportunity. And it's uh, the more you're willing to sacrifice and the more you're willing to, um, you know, the, the, the more that a, a wrestling company can use you at lower expense for themselves, uh, that's an incentive towards them choosing you over somebody else. Um, is that right or wrong? I don't know. Should a, a, a good wrestling company take a stand and say, we're always going to pay for somebody's travel? Maybe, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see that as being a clear cut case. And I know there's like, uh, there's, there's been Twitter drama, right? About like, uh, you know, shaming people for flying themselves into, uh, into like the UK and, you know, I had to earn it and, and all that. I, I don't know. It's uh, I think it's a debatable area I, I, in, in a perfect world. Yeah. Wrestling companies should, should pay for the, the way of all the talent that they use. Um, but there's a, there's an economic uh, pressure that makes it uh, easier for wrestling companies to, uh, to get away with not doing it. Um, as a trainer, um, one of the things that I've been kind of forceful about in, in teaching people, especially locally, now we're getting way down to the, to the grassroots of, of independent wrestling here, but uh, locally in the U.S., um, a lot of smaller indies will uh, you know, book a, a, a card largely full of local wrestlers and then expect those local wrestlers to sell tickets directly to their friends and family. And uh, I would try to, uh, I don't know, teach them or encourage them to, uh, not work for free, especially in that case where you're providing a very, uh, uh obvious and direct source of revenue. Uh, they, they know if you sell, you know, five tickets at, at let's just say $10 a, a ticket to make the math easy. They're, they're generating $50 directly off of you. Not to mention the, the value of the, the service that you provide as a performer. So, I don't think that people should work for free in that case. Um, but uh, everybody's uh, an eager young wrestler who doesn't, in, in many cases, know better. And it's easy for a promoter at times to get away with not paying wrestlers anything. So um, I think, I guess what I think is wrestlers, when they have the opportunity to, um, pressure is maybe too strong a word, but to make sure that promoters pay them, they should. And uh, they, if the more informed that wrestlers are, the more that they will be able to be aware of where it's uh, within their 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 rights or their ability or their economic viability to to request um, to be paid for for the the valuable services that they provide. No, thank you. That that sort of gives uh, an insight that some of us that you know haven't wrestled or you know been involved behind the scenes in that way. Um, don't have. I think um, short of uh, AW having somebody go to a training camp in order to get booked as an extra, I think it's it's uh, an unclear area and, and everyone has to make 
their decisions. So in terms of the media ecosystem on page 12, um, of course, um, I think just as this report was coming out or just prior, just after, was of course the NBC Universal WWE Peacock announcement. Um, but around the same time, there was an article originally that I saw that where a Fox executive said that a company like Tubi was going to be more profitable than the Fox network one day. A few weeks later, there was an article that said Tubi isn't doing that well. So assuming that a company like Tubi does succeed and really does become more profitable than a Fox network, do you A, see sort of a wrestling brand spearheading, um, you know, an OTT service like this or a streaming service? And do you think that some of these corporate entities might end up bidding amongst themselves. Sometimes let's say there's multiple bidders for um, SmackDown. Do you think Fox would put in a bid and Tubi would, or the corporate overlords would sort of shake that out and say like, no, you know, this is who's going to be bidding. I, I don't know that this, this is where we get really speculative. And it's, I, th I think the, the vision is way over the horizon. I think, so there's these fa fasts. Have you heard this, this acronym that the fa I think free, ad supported something streaming tech i forget what the t is but uh so tubi is one roku is another um i'm, I'm looking at it here. stir is another that sinclair owns right and uh pluto is is yet another one these these free video services that have a, a, a vast array of content um on them i've uh somebody tagged me today uncharted territory is on it's on pluto right now I've, uh, I'm, I'm wrestling John Silver on there somewhere. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think, I, I don't know, is, uh, is wrestling popular enough? I think it can contribute to uh, building up one of these fasts into, into something that's, you know, that gains a lot of uh, watch time. But uh, I think there's a lot of value, whatever the, the medium of transmission is in these existing brands like Fox, ABC, NBC. Um, I guess one of the big questions, and I was asking somebody about this earlier this week, or, or it's, it's Sunday also, I guess last week, um, is that I don't understand and, uh, why TV advertising is so much more valuable, uh, per, per viewer than, uh, digital advertising. Um, and I guess the, one of the big questions to me is that it, do those, does that margin, does that discrepancy reduce over time? Uh, and, and I don't understand the advertising industry well enough to uh, try to, exp you know, predict that or explain that. But um, what, what, what seems to be happening is that, you know, if you, if you watch, well, what's definitely happening in WWE's case is, is if you watch, say, an hour of WWE content on, uh, on YouTube, let's say you watch an hour of Raw and SmackDown clips, uh, WWE makes maybe maybe five cents off of that watch time. To that, that's probably imprecise, but let's say for the, for the sake of uh, comparison, five cents off of that. But if you watch WWE content uh, for an hour on Fox or NBC Universal USA Network, uh, you can justify that WWE is paying. You know, WWE is generating about seventy five cents off of that one hour of watch time. So it's something like in the order of like twelve times the value of what they're they're getting through youtube and then now 
as soon as I say that, I should note that, uh, you know, YouTube is just an ad revenue supported uh, platform and NBC Universal and Fox are supported not only by ad revenue, but also by affiliate fees uh, that cable and satellite companies pay in order to be allowed to carry those uh, networks. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how the economics work out uh, so that the, the the streaming services like Tubi end up becoming this uh, huge force that is generating more revenue than Fox. But uh, I guess it's going to depend on where the watch time con continues to gravitate over time. Um, as far as will will there will there be bids within a say Fox for SmackDown between Fox Broadcast and Tubi? Um, at least this round, I would be very surprised if Tubi could make a competitive offer to take SmackDown away from Fox Broadcast. Um, I would think that the parent, the parent company would I don't know would uh, probably just put in one bid because you don't want to be competing with yourself, right? That just on its face, uh, I, I don't see like that. That doesn't seem to make economic sense for um, essentially two subsidiaries to compete with each other thus potentially driving up uh, the going rate of the property that you're trying to acquire. So I would, I would guess that that's not going to happen. That would kind of be a conflict of interest. No, that makes sense. Thank you. So with um, uh, buy rates or subscribers, so I'm specifically referring to on page 21, AW pay-per-views and page 23, New Japan World subscriptions. I don't know if this should be rolled into one, but for both, you know, uh, for the pay-per-views for AEW and the um, annual subscription averages for New Japan World, it's been perceived as somewhat disappointing given the, um, you know, the scope uh, or presence of AEW in the U.S., especially after they got on TNT and for New Japan World, sort of their reach internationally, that the numbers have been pretty stagnant. Do you think that these companies have found their fans that are willing to pay above and beyond what they can um, get for free. Um, and that's been satisfied or is there more room for growth? I think uh, it, let's say in AEW's case, it's, it's just about, can you grow your, the popularity of your brand and the way to grow the popularity of your brand is to grow the popularity of your stars. Um, I think, you know, it, it is surprising in some ways that the first pay-per-view after AEW was on TNT, did a lower uh, pay-per-view sales, did lower pay-per-view sales than the two before they were ever on TNT, which makes to total, you know, that doesn't make any sense in the old way of thinking about the business where uh, the, the business is, is sort of this um, hype business and destination business where you go on TV and you hype up these matches and then you try to sell people a product, whether that's a ticket or a pay-per-view buy. Um, and the, and the notion that you need TV in order to do that. Whereas double or nothing, 2019 and all out 2019, both of which were broadcast without being on TNT before AEW was on TNT. Uh, those shows did 98,000 and 88,000 buys respectively. Uh, and then they followed that up by after their TNT debut in October, November 9th, they ran full gear and only drew 80,000 buys. I think part of that 
trend or that pattern has a lot to do with, okay, double or nothing did this great buy rate. Can, buy rate I'm, I'm sucking this old language of buy rate. You can't say buy rate anymore because nobody talks about buy rates. We're talking about buys. But anyway, uh, it did 98,000 buys, which was which is among the it's, it's among the most successful AW pay-per-views that AW has run to this point, probably in large part because I think there's sort of this spike in interest whenever something debuts, whenever something comes out. AEW uh, launched with a great deal of fanfare and interest in that, though, oh, my God, there's going to be this alternative with all this money behind it. And they have this deal with uh, TNT coming up and they're going to be on TV. And there's, you know, this is a serious thing to take seriously and to watch. And there was... I think enormous interest and people were aware of it because of the internet and social media and they didn't need to need television to be aware of it. Um, and then even after the debut on TNT, it's not as if, uh, it's not as if so many new fans were grown that that greatly exploded the pay-per-view uh, sales rate. So I guess, um, I see there's room for growth, but it all depends on the overall, sea level of a company like AEW in terms of how popular are they, which means how popular are the stars? How much do people care and want to see uh, a big match? Um, and there's a New Japan question in there as well. I, I guess it's it's largely the same thing. I, I think there is room for growth in a different way for New Japan in terms of if um, the New Japan world interface can be made uh, more accessible to uh, non-Japanese language fans, I think it's relatively easy to sign up for New Japan World, but I do believe there's a significant number of people who um, just aren't going to bother with the complication of trying to figure out what exactly is happening on this screen when I have to enter my, my credit card. I think some people are just intimidated and it's it's just a uh, it's just a source of friction to uh, to 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 try to sign up for new, on new Japan world and the fact that they don't have any presence in the U S on uh, various uh, streaming platforms. I understand they're on the Amazon fire stick, but they're not on Roku. They're not on uh, Apple TV. Uh, they're not on smart TVs. And there's just a, a lack of ease in, in, in a uh, using the, the streaming service. And, and probably there's some intimidation factor in signing up and, um, Mainly those things, I guess. So I think there's there's room for growth in that area. Again, this isn't. I, I have no hope that that's going to change. But that but here is an opportunity that I think uh, uh, could be remedied in, in, into generating more revenue. And uh, it's it's a it's a it's an area for growth. No, that makes sense. And um, in answering a lot of these questions, we covered um, some other major sections of the report, which are a wonderful read related to um, social media and YouTube. Um, you introduced me to some links that sent me down a rabbit hole in terms of YouTube views and subscribers that we've talked about in depth on this show in, in past episodes. So the last formal question for me from the report before John um, ask some questions would be related to your pontification or um, look into the future of live events post-COVID. So of course, pre-COVID, the live event was kind of being seen as a relic. Is it more trouble than it's worth? For WWE, there had been um, at least one un unprofitable quarter. It was thin, thin margins, certainly. But one of the things that we've talked about on this show, and I'm not sure if you had seen the article or, or the discussion, was from NPR 
where they looked at pent up demand and they looked at the flu pandemic from 1918 and how it affected baseball attendance. And baseball attendance sort of came back very strong, sort of because people hadn't been able to go to baseball games. Do you think that there is pent up demand for major pro wrestling? And if WWE and AEW don't take advantage of it, do you think um, there'd be a local benefit to local promotions? I think uh, there is pent up demand. Whether or not you're going to be able to extract that pent up demand is going to a large part of it. I think is going to be out of the hands of, of wrestling promoters because it's. I think a, lar- a large part of it is is to what how fast does this roll out? Um, how how fast does it become safe or or at least perceptively perceptibly safe for thousands of people? to gather in close indoor spaces. Um, it just depends on how, whether, whether that's a quicker or slower process, I guess. Um, because, you know, we, we have a lot of people here in the United States who, who I think something like 15% uh, say they're never going to take the vaccine. And, uh, and, and there's all these variants now of COVID uh, that uh, might complicate things. I don't know. Um, but I do, I, but I do think there is pent up demand and, um, I think, uh, I think, let's say in a hypothetical case that you know the vast majority of people we're at we're at a point where the vast majority of people believe that it is a uh, it's safe to go to live events, um, and it's and it's that's the case in relatively short order. Um, I think there would be a uh, a surge of people to buy tickets to go to live events, um, and I think uh, I th- I think. But I mean, AEW is probably you know never going to run a house show. Would be my prediction. They're only going to continue to run uh, television tapings, media events. But uh, I think they're uh, you know, it's not as if AEW was um, drawing ten thousand people every every um, week. And I think they have enough of a the the sort of venues that they run probably uh, or the or the venue venues that they could book are uh are probably you know appropriately sized so that if they were going to draw larger crowds than they had pre-covid i'm sure that they could uh you know find the the venues with the capacity to accommodate that and to maximize those revenues um and i think wb if they felt that there was a lot of demand they could uh, you know go back to running the number of house shows they were before. The attendance was pretty low on a lot of those house shows uh, in the years leading up to 2020. So um, I, I think they're probably already in a good position to, to take advantage of a situation like that. And uh, I think, yeah, I think, you know, something that might happen is maybe it will become, um, I don't know, uh allowable by local governments to uh, run with maybe 300 or 500 people in a building before it's allowed uh, to run, you know, 10,000 people in a building, at which point we could possibly see independent wrestling companies open on a wider basis before some of the bigger companies. But um, yeah, I I think everybody's pretty much in a, uh, in a good position to take advantage of that. I don't know. I don't know if you, if you guys think differently. 
So one of the things that I have top of mind, uh, being a, a fellow New Yorker, is um, the governor, Andrew Cuomo's recently announcement that 10,000 seat buildings could return to 10% capacity. So, you know, the first people to jump on that are those already planned in the building, like New York Rangers and New York Knicks. So they're going to bring in 2,000 fans. So I've been thinking about it like, if you could have 2,000 people for wrestling, at what point does it become profitable? Where mm -hmm. how much can you charge for ticket, right? Like if you'll feel comfortable going with a, for the worst seat, quote unquote, which might have to be at the top to have it spaced out, would somebody pay $200? You know, I don't know. I think in the case of like WWE, I think you can, I, mean, I don't know how exactly they'll, they'll game theory it out, but I, I think there's arguably a, there's, there's obviously a value, an additional value in having a certain number of live fans there. There's a value in terms of making their product better and helping support their, their TV viewership. Um, I think they believe, and I think rightly so, that their, their TV program is not as good without a lot of live fans there um, organically reacting. And I think there's so much media revenue that maybe you can justify, well, we'll, we'll run this live event at a loss of, I don't know, uh, many thousands of dollars, but maybe it's worth it because of what it adds to our media product. So there's that at least. And I know there, there was some uh, discussion on the last earnings call on February 4th for WWE uh, along the lines of, of, of what you just said there, Lavi, that, you know, it, it all depends on um, what we can charge for, for tickets and how many people we're allowed to have in the building and how many you can actually draw. And at what point does it become worth it? So, I, but I think there's a conversation we had in WWE's case, probably only because AEW is already running with a limited number of fans in their sort of, you know, semi-outdoor venue. So it probably doesn't uh, make a lot of sense for them to go into other buildings until there's um, they can run at pretty close to full capacity. But I do think there's probably a discussion to have within WWE um, about, you know, maybe it's not going to be a profitable live event for us, but there's, there's so much to gain in finally getting uh, fans back in attendance that maybe it's worth it to, uh, to run these at a little bit of a loss. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, John, did you have uh, more questions about the report or these topics? I was just kind of wondering, let's just say you bring back fans, even if it's 10%, so you got 2,000 people, would it behoove them to kind of, I don't know, give like a package? Let's say you're going to charge $200 a seat, even if the seat's not great. Would it be smart of them to say, hey, in this package, just for these 2,000 people, you get to meet Liv Morgan or, or something. And, you know, you get a free T-shirt, you get a headband, you get uh, free food or or something. If they did that, do you think that would kind of maybe entice people? Like, oh, wow, I'm really getting a great deal for this $200, and it's only 2,000 people, so this is really rare. Like, is that a kind of a way to do it for them? I, I think that's uh, that's that's possible. Um, if it really is safe, I guess uh, – the demand is probably already there, or I guess you're, you're thinking about uh, uh, a, a bigger fee per person then, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I would, I would think. Yeah. Just so they can kind of make a little bit of money or, or come close to making money on the show. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's probably a good idea if there is a demand that well exceeds the capacity that you're able to offer. It, it would uh, it would probably be a good idea to uh, you know, make it some sort of, some sort of package ticket that's 
uh, well in access, excess of what a normal ticket price would be that has all these other things, meet and greets and things of that nature that uh, would, would allow the, the, the event to get closer to profitable or, or yeah, or closer to profitable at least. Is there a reason why New Japan isn't on, or New Japan World really isn't on Roku right now? I know obviously they have the show, um, which is just you know the one hour slot, if you will, and you know the ten episodes for right now. But is there some sort of reason why the New Japan World isn't on Roku? I, th- I think it just comes down to, um, I, I guess I don't know what the detail is on this, but like I, I think it just comes down to you know Fire Stick. I was, I'm told is in Japan. That is a, a device, a streaming device that is used in Japan, but uh, the others, not so much. So that's the only one that they have a presence on, even though, uh, something like, you know, probably 40% of their subscribers are from the outside of Japan. So I, I don't know. It, 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 it kind of blows my mind because like IWTV is even, I think they're still, at least on my Apple TV, they're still branded as Powerbomb TV. But uh, even IWTV and, and things like that, that are, you know, far smaller operations, uh, ha- are able to get on those streaming devices. But a big company like New Japan, supported by an even bigger company like Bushi Road, can't. Is the signing, or we're not really signing, but the deal between New Japan and AEW, is that going to be mutually beneficial financially? for everyone involved because you know obviously we've seen kenta uh moxley you know was already in new japan and some of the guys like archer or whatever were already part of new japan and you know they kind of go in between both and i'm sure that it's profitable for the wrestler but is it profitable for aew new japan to have a deal like that i i think it's um i think it is mutually beneficial for AEW new japan to work together because i, th- I think it leads to greater interest in both of their products um, I, I know it's something that AEW wants to do, and I think there's interest. Um, it generates uh, more interest across many of their metrics to do that. Um, I think uh, New Japan having some of the AEW stars, uh, particularly uh, those who used to be with New Japan uh, back, would be a great benefit to them. Um, even in 2019, I saw... you see a decline in in google web search in the u.s for new japan and i i have to think that it has a lot to do with uh stars like kenny omega and the young bucks moving away from new japan and going to AEW. so i think there's a lot of um there's a dent in their interest from the loss of kenny omega and probably to a lesser extent the young bucks um in in having those stars no longer with them so I think there's, uh, you know, if, if this is a company that really wants to uh, grow its popularity in the U.S., I think it would be a great addition to, for them to have uh, access to those stars again. And it's interesting with the rumors of Okada coming over, people are saying, oh, well, Kent did it really didn't draw ratings. What does it matter? But to me, I feel like that would be important to them, especially put him on pay-per-view or something, because he did draw and did help. Uh, New Japan and and ROH sell out MSG. Obviously, he was part of WrestleMania weekend, but he was like the big draw on the show. He was the most popular guy there, and I feel like he will help them. But they got to use him right and treat him like the star he is. Do you think Okada coming over has any sort of dent, or is this going to be just like same old, same old? I think having Okada in in the right kind of match with the right kind of build on an AEW show would um would do really well. Uh, on pay-per-view uh, what is really well i mean uh, a, a, a strong pay-per-view uh 
show for for AEW in terms of you know the number of buys that it would draw. Would it would it uh, lead lead to uh, doubling their their pay per view buys? Probably not, but it, it leads to a, a, a lot of extra interest. I think there's um, I don't think that the the total available market for let's say an AEW pay per view is buying every single pay per view. I think there's um there's a lot of uh, peripheral interest that you can maximize if you put, you know, if you build up a really great show. So I, I, th- I think there is something to gain in, uh, I, th- I think it's, it's easy to overplay the idea that um, nobody really knows who this, who Kenta, for example, is. And uh, you know, these, I think there is sort of this, um, this layer, especially in WWE's case, I don't know about AEW. That's a, a more complicated question, but especially in WWE's case, that there is this layer of what you might think of, of casual fans or WWE only fans. But I think there is, um, even if a lot of people, let's say, don't recognize Kenta or Hideo Itami, um, there's value in in the hype that uh, fans, if they look into it, will see around something like that happening where, you know, people are, are, are buzzing a little bit about something like Kenta showing up and giving John Moxley to go to sleep. Um, and I think that does have a value that is easy to dismiss, but, um, but is nonetheless important and, and can, uh, can be exploited definitely through uh, direct to consumer, you know, purchases like pay-per-view, but also um, can generate interest overall feel like a lot of fans kind of expected New Japan to have a deal with them sooner because, you know, Okada was on the All In show and they had obviously some New Japan love uh, at that point. So I think maybe maybe I'm in the minority thinking that, but I know me and a lot of my fans, not really casual fans, we're more of hardcore fans. We were expecting New Japan to play kind of a bigger role in AEW and have more guys and, and enhance the roster. Cause once you put those guys who are probably the best wrestlers in the world mixed in with the AEW guys, I mean, it just, it kind of raises everybody's game and raises everybody's level. So just to me, I think just having this deal will really help um, AEW just maybe with the hardcores, even much more. So I'm talking about the hardcores that weren't necessarily watching. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, there was a lot of heat. I don't know what the, the, the details are, but there was some sort of heat over how uh, Omega and maybe the Bucks left New Japan. And um, and there's there's the complication of um, AEW having the existing relationship with Ring of Honor. So there's there's those complications. But um, I, I have heard that the forbidden door has been opened. So we're seeing <laughs> that even in the case of Impact in New Japan cooperating a bit. And yeah, attempted to be trademarked or copyrighted. <laughs> yes, I saw that. <laughs> you have to, <laughs> a little, which is crazy, because somebody will do it. You know what I mean? Like uh, Arn Anderson, the guy definitely should own the Four Horsemen, but somebody you know tries to trademark it, and he's a shit. I own that. I got, I got to get my trademark. So it's kind of smart nowadays to do that. As crazy as it sounds, it's actually really smart. Everyone's stealing trademarks. Yeah. As far as kind of just you know winding it down and not keeping you too long, because I could probably ask you a million questions. I'm sure Lavi could too. But as far as kind of WB and their growth, do you think that it's going to continue? Because we've seen best quarter ever, best quarter ever, and it's crazy because there's not really 
any fans in the building, quote unquote, it's, you know, these billion dollar deals with Peacock and Saudi Arabia and, and, and firing people and making money off that during, during the pandemic. Do you see the continuation of a huge growth for WB and keep growing, which seems to be crazy, but true. I do. Yeah. I'm uh, just today. In fact, I'm working on an article for a publication to be named about, um, uh, I think I'm pretty optimistic that W is going to get a raise in its TV rights fees in the U.S. in the next round, um, because Raw and SmackDown, despite despite the fact that W there's there's ample evidence in my view that W's popularity since about 2017 uh, has been on the decline annually. That's uh, even if we exclude the complications related to the pandemic in 2020, um, you see declines. I have a post-it note on my wall because I mentioned this so often. It, there's been declines in paid attendance, total and average, North American and international. There's been declines in merchandise sales, product licensing revenues. There's decline in the W network after 2018 that has not recovered from yet. There's been declines in Google web search in the US and worldwide. Even despite that, fortunately for Dodi, they live in a time and a market where there's multiplying values on live sports content and um raw and smackdown continue to be even in their diminished state even though i can do a uh, a, a spreadsheet and show that uh, w raw has declined worse than cable overall even despite that um nonetheless raw still remains a, a highly ranked program on monday um it's a uh, especially when it's not opposed by the NFL uh, uh, on Monday Night Football. It's among, you know, it's it's usually number one or one of its hours is near number one. Uh, ba- basically, it averages about the third most viewed program in the key demo um, on an average basis annually, despite these um, viewership declines. Um, so as long as that's the case, and it's, it's similar for SmackDown, um, I don't have the data on broadcast, but if SmackDown was a cable program and I throw it in there with that cable data, um, SmackDown is among the most watched programs uh, on Friday night. Um, so I think as long as that's the case, as long as Ron SmackDown are among the you know top five programs on their night, they're going to continue to be able to demand growing TV rights fees. Um, I, I even just did like a, a pie chart the other day looking at you know, I, I, we get all this data from Showbiz Daily, so we get basically 100, the top 150 programs uh, for every day. I have that going back to uh, the middle of 2015. And if you look at that, uh, and and I just take all the the stuff in in the top 150 that's on the USA Network, and and look at uh, you know who's providing the most watch time among among that uh, set of data, and it's it's something like. 80 or 90% of it is provided by WWE raw on the USA network. So, wow. There's now that's only first run stuff or that's only cable originals. Right. So uh, who knows what law and order reruns are doing on the USA network, but it, it, it just sort of, um, it just, it's, it's just, uh, an impression of how valuable raw is to the USA network. So, and then an, another, uh, bit of information that makes me think that there's a lot of room yet for growth for wrestling programs in terms of the media rights values that they're able to demand 
is that um, if you think about how much does a um, if if let's say uh, you know Fox decided to uh, not renew SmackDown or USA Network, NBC decided not re- not renew Raw, they would have to replace it with something, and uh, they would you know let's say they replaced it with uh, you know let's say SmackDown is easier because it's two hours. Let's say you know SmackDown was replaced with two drama series, and uh, you know that that would cost you know. A few million probably per episode to uh to to produce and uh if you have two drama series that's probably only you know 20 some odd new episodes a year whereas uh w smackdown is providing you with uh not only first run but live content uh as well not just uh one season a year for 20 some odd weeks a year but for 52 weeks a year uh every every single week throughout the year so uh if you do the math i think it comes out to uh you know if 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 you compare it compare the value compare the cost uh of say w smackdown to fox it's quite a bit lower than the cost would be to have two drama series on fox so uh and and those drama series while they may be prestigious and and well-reviewed or something like that First of all, they probably don't generate uh, the viewership in, in 18 to 49 that you know that SmackDown does. And um, they, they, you might not be able to tie uh, certain agreements in your contracts with cable and satellite providers where you're promising them, let's say, X number of hours of live content or sports content or X number of hours of first run content. Um, I understand that that's... That's the kind of thing that uh, is agreed upon between uh, networks and uh, cable and satellite dis- distributors that, you know, we're going to agree to provide you X number of hours of live content or first run content. And if we're not able to meet that, uh, you know, promise, we go back and we have to renegotiate this part of the contract or something like that. So I think there's a, a lot of value in, in wrestling programming, uh, you know, more than ever. And I think there's still room for growth for WWE, despite the fact that it's diminishing in popularity, despite the fact that even uh, at least Raw's viewership is declining at a worse rate than cable overall. And even despite the fact that, uh, you know, maybe there's a young viewer problem and there's, there were some weeks there in December where uh, AEW was beating Raw in uh, some of the younger demos, including for uh, 18 to 49, I think at least on one week. Um, but I don't think that, uh, all of those apparently negative things that I just mentioned are going to prohibit WB from, uh, getting a raise in its U S rights fees, uh, when they go to the table probably next year and probably come to a new agreement with media partners, maybe NBC and Fox st- uh, still, uh, in 2023, I think, um, maybe another interesting Part of that uh, that question about uh, you know what's going to happen with the, the next set of deals is is part of is, is any part of that conversation a conversation about acquiring uh, in NBC's case acquiring WWE because they're paying now um, you know what is it two hundred sixty five million dollars a year for Raw they're paying about two hundred million dollars a year for the network content so uh, they're paying over four hundred fifty dollars a year for uh, for WWE content. 
uh, on, a, on a company that right now has a market capital, I think under a billion or under $4 billion. So uh, maybe it's just a better idea to acquire that company outright rather than to continue to, uh, to lease it. Whether NBC wants to be in charge of a wrestling company, though, I don't, is another question. So we'll see. Lavi, you got anything else? No, I think this was uh, was awesome, and and we really appreciate all the time. And uh, we'll try to resist not saying, "Can you come back week 13, 14, 15? Because <laughs> we know there's so much great content. But um, of course, we'd love to, uh, you know, have this opportunity again. I just wanted to share um, that um, I am a five dollar Patreon. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly? Member of WrestleNomics and. Um, you know, one of the amazing things about the work that Brandon is doing is so many people hype what they're doing. His work is always understated and tremendously over delivers. So I had been a Patreon subscriber back when it was uh, Mookie and Brandon collaborating. And then, of course, um, uh, Mookie is uh, vice president of AEW now. So it, it didn't, you know, uh, make as much sense to to have WrestleNomics in that format. So um, when uh, when it came back as in Patreon, um, one of the things that Brandon wrote in bold uh, capital letters is, I don't plan at this point to provide any additional content. So sort of making it clear that you're just supporting WrestleNomics, there's this radio show. And then suddenly, like two or three times a week come these like amazing reports that he obviously that spent like 25 hours on and you know this is essential so if you're listening and you love a show like this and especially you want to dive deeper into the data and analytics part of it like you must subscribe to the wrestlenomics patreon uh without even saying of course listen to the uh to the show yeah it's uh i, I appreciate it lobby i uh i have to under promise and over deliver because I never know when I'm gonna, especially. So I've only been restarting the Patreon now for uh, since October. I restarted it, and uh, I'm not really sure yet uh, what the recurring, um, you know, content is. But uh, people do also get access to um, to the uh, the viewership spreadsheet uh, that uh, has. I don't know some tens of thousands of data points that are extracted from Shilba's daily. And um, it's got tabs upon tabs of, uh, of analysis. It's the spreadsheet that I use to keep up with uh, everything that's going on in uh, the world of wrestling viewership. So that's part of it. And, uh, and I do uh, have been putting out the notes uh, most weeks lately as well. So there may be some other things in the work in the works for the Patreon as well, but I want to, uh, you know, not promise them just yet. Love it. Where else can everybody find you social media wise and give us all the plugs? Sure. I am on Twitter. The WrestleNomics has a Twitter account that I operate, which is at WrestleNomics. And then I have my own Twitter uh, that is at Brandon Thurston. Uh, I have WrestleNomics.com where there's a lot of free uh, articles and ad free content. No pop-ups, no interstitials. Uh, all that stuff is right there at, at WrestleNomics.com. There's also some uh, resources there, some some data uh, on things like television viewership, W Network subscribers, the history of uh, pay-per-view buys, and uh, that's all there. And um, I have a podcast that comes out every week. Right now, Sunday is the current tr traditional recording day, and uh, the latest episode just dropped yesterday. 
So you can find that on your podcast app by searching for WrestleNomics. Awesome stuff. And before we go, Lavi, please uh, shout out all your plugs as well. Sure. So um, best place to find me is on Twitter, Lavi Marg, L-A-V-I-E-M-A-R-G. My longer form articles are on lioncubjobsearch.com. If you want to check Amazon, if you still want to think about Trump mania and realize, uh, you know, the everything that happened the last several years and how it relates to pro wrestling, you could check out a couple editions of that book on Amazon or for any job interviewing or career needs as well. Great stuff, as always. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Two Man Power Trip. Check out my website, tmptempire.com. And while you're at it, while you're on the WrestleNomics Patreon, check out mine at patreon.com, tmptempire. Six years of interviews and archives. More to come as well. So thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. And, of course, thank you, Lavi, as always. And thank you, everyone out there in listener land for listening. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you right back here next week for the Business of the business. See you next week, folks. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.